Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knacks at once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Noor Kibbe. Noor is a clinical assistant professor at the Stanford Department of Dermatology, where she practices dermatology in Mohs Surgery. Noor, thank you so much for joining me from the West Coast. Thanks for having me, Thomas. So today what I thought we would do is highlight one of the JAMA special communication issues on evidence-based clinical practice guidelines for extramammary Paget's disease. This is a condition we all see, but fairly infrequently in our clinical practice. And so it's good to have a refresher on what it is we should be doing and how it is we should be caring for our patients, um, especially in the absence of the most crystal clear data and large-scale publications. So I am really excited to have you on, Noor, so that we can sort of just approach a patient with extramammary Paget's disease together, starting with a physical exam, talking about imaging and workup, recognizing that there really is no staging system for these patients, talking about the treatment, and then ultimately the follow-up. So when you see these patients on your schedule, Noor, in addition to, you know, examining the area of interest, how do you approach a patient with extramammary Paget's disease? That's a great question, Thomas, and, and I'm glad uh, you asked that. Um, before I actually dive into it, I just want to mention that these clinical practice guidelines were a monumentous sort of interdisciplinary international effort by our group. I believe that on a previous episode, um, you had my colleague, Dr. Alam, who spearheaded this effort, discuss our guidelines for sebaceous carcinoma. And we've performed something very similar, a systematic review and developed some consensus statements for EMPD. So um, we will, throughout the course of this episode, sort of refer back to these guidelines and consensus statements that our expert panel has put together. And so diving right into sort of the clinical scenario, and I think this is again something we'll come back to throughout this episode, is that in managing these um, often challenging patients as a most surgeon, this is a case that is all about the planning. Um, seeing the patient in consultation, performing the physical exam, the necessary workup, which we will talk about in greater detail throughout this episode. But seeing the patient in clinic, the first thing um, that um, I do is complete a physical examination of the area. And so um, this includes the pubic, inguinal, genital, perineal, perianal, and axillary regions, as well as examining the associated regional lymph nodes. 
EMPD, as our listeners well know, is a primarily intraepidermal malignancy. It has the potential to invade more deeply into the skin and typically go to the regional lymph nodes, but it can also have distant metastasis as well. And so most of the cases that I see involve the vulva and penoscrotal skin, which is, appears to be commensurate with what is published in the literature. But there are cases also of perianal EMPD, which we will come back to and talk about as these can be more aggressive. The vulvar presentation of EMPD should also include a complete GYN exam by the gynecologist, um, because we do know that mucosal extension into the vaginal canal is associated with worse mortality. And we know this from SEER database analysis. And we also know the importance of the lymph node exam because about 20% of primary EMPD in the published literature metastasizes to the regional lymph nodes. Do you think that that's a real number or are you suspicious that it's at least somewhat inflated simply due to publication bias? We've had people talk about other rare tumors in the past. If you look at things like some of the other adnexal tumors, they have very high published rates of lymph node metastasis and sentinel lymph node biopsy utilization. In reviewing all the data that you looked at, do you find the, the 20% for invasive EMPD to be an accurate number that's sort of commensurate with what, what you've seen in your own practice? Or, or what's your actual thought about the gestalt of the invasive nature of EMPD? Yeah, that's a great question, Thomas. And it it is one that our expert panel actually also weighed in and our collective clinical experience um, does point to the fact that this could represent a publication bias, that this disease is primarily an intraepidermal malignancy um, that we often do not see spread internally. Uh, But suffice it to say, it definitely has the potential and therefore a physical examination that includes evaluation of the lymph nodes is um, encouraged. Now, historically, these were, you know, nonspecific tumors in the sense that more than any other tumor, I think EMPD gets mistaken for some sort of inflammatory dermatosis. And um, do we still in the literature see the long lag time and the mistreatment of these malignancies as something other than cancer as it, as it was a, a decade or more ago? Have, have we made any progress there or are you seeing that trend continue? Yeah, that's a great question as well. And the average time from presentation to diagnosis, and that could include presentation to a primary care physician, was about seven years. So there, there is quite a long lag between clinical presentation and diagnosis of this malignancy. Um, and so it, it can often be mistaken for, as you mentioned, inflammatory dermatoses, as well as malignant processes like squamous cell in situ or Bowen's disease. And so, and that is in part because it presents as polymorphous uh, lesions, erythematous patches with scale, ulceration, erosion, hypopigmentation. And about a third of cases we found presented with pruritus as well. Mm -hmm. And when you look at one of these lesions clinically, is there anything that points you or increases your suspicion that this might be one of those cases that actually has a dermal or an invasive EMPD component versus being a predominantly intraepidermal malignancy? Is there any features that our listeners can reliably look at and say, hmm, maybe this is an area that I should biopsy in addition to the you know, primary lesion biopsy or anything like that? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think just taking a step back, the clinical exam of EMPD can be challenging because as our listeners well know, subclinical extension is quite common in this um, malignancy. And so I often find also that in addition to looking for the clinical borders of these pink uh, and, and erythematous patches is sidelighting um, the lesion to look for sort of very subtle scale or textural irregularity that can also help further identify clinical borders and as we'll talk about help uh, locate sites for additional biopsies to mark the histopathological border of this uh, lesion as for dermal spread i think a punch biopsy um, is indicated if you notice any nodules as this could signify dermal disease and again, going back to potentially what could um, construe a publication bias, about two-thirds of our published cases involved some sort of dermal spread, whether that was microinvasive or frank dermal disease. Interesting. And so if we just continue along that trend and visualizing the patient in the exam room in front of us, you've, you've taken a look at the, the lesion, you've marked any potential nodules within that ill-defined vulvar or scrotal plaque. You have not felt any regional lymph adenopathy by palpation. What is your thought on scouting biopsies, both in the context of anticipating most surgery or in the context of potentially referring the patient for a wide local excision with another type of practitioner? Yeah, great question. I almost always will do additional biopsies or scouting biopsies to help identify the um, lesion beyond its clinical borders. And so these typically start at one to two centimeters from the clinical border and oftentimes are circumferential around the uh, patch um, or plaque of, of EMPD. And what kind of biopsies do you normally perform in that instance? Are they punch? Are they excisional? Are they shave biopsies? Does it depend on the clinical appearance or the anatomic location? Yeah, typically these are shave biopsies, again, because what you're trying to sort of offer your dermatopathologist is breadth. Oftentimes, as you get to the border of, of these lesions, you're really now looking at single cell spread. And that can be challenging to identify and can be missed too. So I think giving your dermatopathologist good breadth with broad shaves at the borders can be quite helpful. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the the main question, these are sort of two overlapping topics is what is the indication for imaging and also how do you think about primary disease versus secondary EMPD and what is the significance of a potential underlying malignancy? So I'll let you answer those questions maybe together, but let's first walk through the definition of primary versus secondary EMPD and then maybe we can go down the rabbit hole of how we work up a patient to know whether we favor this to be primary or secondary disease. Yeah, rabbit hole is right, Thomas, because we could really go down a rabbit hole. And I think that these are um, sort of uh, consensus statements that as an expert panel, um, we tried to synthesize the data that we had and develop um, recommendations um, that were both practical and, and reasonable for clinicians. And so 
primary EMPD for our listeners is EMPD that is confined to the cutaneous um, or mucocutaneous surfaces only. And secondary EMPD is EMPD that is associated with an underlying internal adenocarcinoma. It is a loose definition and certainly um, additional questions that are needed to better define this include what is the time frame between the EMPD and the internal adenocarcinoma? Does contiguous adenocarcinoma count? There are historical classification schema that um, do not include contiguous adenocarcinoma. But I can tell you, Thomas, that from reviewing the literature, these are often conflated with one another. And are you considering asynchronous lesions where you develop a internal malignancy a year or more later? Are those generally thought to be related or understanding that there's really no way to know how did your consensus group handle those that are clearly asynchronous internal malignancies? Yeah, so and and maybe our listeners would benefit from getting a sense of um, kind of those rates. So from reviewing the published literature, the overall rates of secondary EMPD were about one in five. So one in five published cases of EMPD were secondary. And of those, about 18% presented synchronously, which as you point out, Thomas, is defined as within a year from EMPD diagnosis. So most of these malignancies were colorectal, breast, prostate, urothelial, or bladder adenocarcinomas. We obviously excluded malignancies that were not adenocarcinoma. We also know from SEER database analysis that there is actually an increased excess absolute risk of secondary malignancies in EMPD. So this association is real. And our expert panel in general agreed that about a year from presentation uh, was a reasonable cutoff point to consider a secondary EMPD. Okay. And so let's, let's say we are at least aware of the potential for being one of those one in five cases where there is an underlying malignancy. Obviously, we could order a whole host of, of laboratory imaging and potentially invasive tests, potentially not always to the patient's benefit. So um, maybe we'll divide it into approaching the male and the female patient separately. And you can just summarize what would be available in terms of workup for that secondary malignancy, and then what's more or less appropriate um, to do so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think before we start ordering tests, I do want to um, remind our readers that we have a very cheap free um, test at our fingertips, which is the review of systems. And so at the very least, I urge everyone to consider a focused review of systems, asking about um, changes in urinary or bowel um, pa um, patterns, symptoms of abdominal bloating, etc. Now, these are obviously neither sensitive nor specific for many of the adenocarcinomas, and these symptoms can be quite common in elderly patients. And so while helpful to know, um, they do not rule in or rule out. Um, additional workup, but might help focus the workup further. The other thing I want to mention is also our expert panel agreed that age-appropriate screening by USPSTF guidelines was recommended and, and should be ensured for every patient walking into our clinics with EMPD, and that can be done um, in collaboration with the primary care doctor. 
The other thing I want to mention is that most screening guidelines actually cut off at about 65 or 75 years of age and doesn't include actually screening for adenocarcinoma such as ovarian or bladder cancer. So it does leave us with um, the question of what do we do in these elderly patients coming to us with EMPD um, who would not otherwise need the age cutoff point for screening tests. And so to your question, this is uh, exactly kind of the approach that we decided to develop in our expert um, panel, which is to say an anatomic site-specific approach, recognizing that penoscrotal um, EMPD is different from vulvar and is different actually from perianal EMPD. Perianal disease in particular, where um, SEER database analysis has shown worse outcomes and overall um, worse survival. Do we have any idea why the perianal tends to have worse outcomes? Is it because you have internal mucosal tracking more frequently? I know that Sears lacks the granularity to really answer that question, but I'm curious if you or, or the panel had any thoughts on why the, uh, the difference exists yeah, no, it's a great question. I think there are two things um, about perianal EMPD. One is that there are higher rates of underlying adenocarcinoma, and I use that term, and I specifically don't say secondary EMPD because that includes both contiguous and discontiguous or distant adenocarcinoma. So it's one that, but two also that there are lower rates of intraepidermal only EMPD in perianal disease. In other words, perianal disease is much more likely to have dermal disease as compared to the other two anatomic um, variants. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's helpful to know. So I guess just to really get specific here, recognizing that a lot of the cancers that may be associated with EMPD aren't going to be picked up by any age-appropriate screening because screening may not be done for ovarian cancer in the target population anymore. What do you recommend? Should all men with EMPD have a PSA blood draw? Should they all have a CEA for, for colon cancer? What kind of testing do you advise or do you truly let the review of systems and or family history guide this? Yeah, and so I think I, I go back to our guidelines um, statement often because I think this is um, part of kind of how we are approaching this, and that is to say that really you want to consider and think about your pretest probability here. And so overall, the rates of an internal adenocarcinoma in penoscrotal and vulvar EMPD are quite low. And our subgroup uh, analysis, um, which we hope to put together and publish, has shown that the rates are somewhere around 6% for penoscrotal and vulvar EMPD and about 25% for perianal EMPD. So I would urge our listeners to consider cost when ordering screening tests for penoscrotal and vulvar disease. And so to your question, it'd be reasonable to start with a PSA, um, a urinalysis, and possibly a hemocult test in penoscrotal EMPD. And for vulvar EMPD, a urinalysis, a, a complete GYN exam with a pap smear potentially, and a possible transvaginal ultrasound for intra-abdominal malignant neoplasms. And um, as for perianal disease, 
um, whether or not patients have met USPSTF guidelines for colonoscopy, I would recommend a colonoscopy or at least a rectosigmoidoscopy. And who would get any sort of imaging on top of this in, in your practice? Yeah, and so I think we do tackle imaging in our um, guidelines statements, and uh, we do um, talk about CT, MRI, or PET scan in the case of invasive disease or clinical lymphadenopathy, or if there is suspicion for an uh, extensive internal neoplasm such as contiguous adenocarcinoma, and um, and that's that's kind of what we concluded from our guidelines consensus statements. In my practice, I do something very similar. I also take into account any high-risk factors that have been published in uh, various cohort studies. And so these include bilateral or extensive erythema nodules, so invasive, which would be suspicious for invasive disease, um, mucosal extension, which would be commensurate with the presence of extensive or contiguous adenocarcinoma, um, and then additional histopathological features such as dermal invasion, lymphovascular invasion, and CK20 positivity on immunohistochemistry, which may be a surrogate for um, an internal adenocarcinoma or secondary EMPD. I guess realizing it's, uh, I'm picturing our, our listeners either working out or driving or doing other things concomitantly to listening. Uh, which will make this a little bit challenging, but maybe in the most broadest of strokes, since you mentioned the um, CK20, uh, you can just give us an, an overview of which immunohistochemical tests are routinely ordered and maybe why they're ordered or what their positive or negative significance in the workup process is. Ideally, this is the sort of data that's best conveyed in a nice table, but given that we're a audio format, we'll do our best to sort of outline this for the listeners in um, audio format. Yeah, and, and I think as you allude to, Thomas, there are really two case scenarios where immunohistochemistry in this disease can be helpful. And one is excluding mimickers, of course. And so um, there are markers that will help rule out squamous cell carcinoma in situ, such as P63 or melanoma, SOX10, that is. And so we mentioned those in our guidelines, and I would urge our readers to refer to that as needed. And the second case use scenario is in uh, considering secondary EMPD. And we do develop a panel in our guidelines for secondary uh, EMPD, which would be CK20, CDX2 positive, GATA3, and GCDFP15 negative. There is no data on the sensitivity of such a composite panel, but this can be suggestive of secondary EMPD. Excellent. I think that's sort of the appropriate level of detail in as you've already done, I encourage uh, our listeners to to seek out this publication in uh, JAMA Oncology on EMPD. Of course, we're we're most surgeons, and we like to treat cancers and malignancies. And so, maybe we can start to have a conversation about the treatment modalities and the way that I've always thought about it. There's obviously wide local excision. There's most surgery, and then there's some sort of complete sort of conferential peripheral margin assessment with permanent sections 
which I think for a lack of better words, we can just call slow-mos because most of our readers, sorry, our listeners will will know what that means. So how do you think about the surgical approach and should we be dividing that conversation into epidermal versus invasive EMPD? Yeah, that is a great question and certainly one that we um, had to explore in our guidelines uh, separately. So intraepidermal versus dermal. I will mention, I think you already did um, say this, Thomas, but just as it relates to the management portion of our discussion today is that there is no validated staging system in EMPD to help guide us risk stratify our patients um, for a recommended treatment options. And so in our guidelines, we do mention that um, there are considerations to uh, keep in mind when deciding on a treatment strategy. And so large size, the chronicity of a lesion, the anatomic location, and patient-specific factors such as comorbidities really should come into play when we think about our, our treatment approach. And so for intraepidermal disease, we do recognize that um, surgical modalities can at times be um, morbid for a patient, such as a radical vulvectomy in a very elderly patient. And so in intraepidermal EMPD, um, we are clear in the guidelines that primary non-invasive therapy, which um, includes amiquimod, can be considered when the morbidity from surgery is high. But there are a lot of limitations to this treatment approach, and we can talk about that more extensively, but um, namely that recurrences uh, remain quite high at about 35% from our pooled analysis. And so there are a lot of downsides to this um, treatment approach. And to our listeners who are, I would say, the majority, most surgeons, we can talk more about what the various approaches using the most technique are. And in my mind, I really think about it as one of three approaches. The first is what we call conventional MOS where the central tumor is extirpated and then the uh, peripheral and deep margins are removed. These are processed often separately with frozen section technique, um, along with representative verticals from the debulk. Um, and the patient is reconstructed typically the same day or the following day. Now, the Zitelli group has actually proposed a peripheral MOS technique in EMPD that can be useful for larger lesions that are over eight centimeters in diameter, where there is no evidence of dermal invasion um, or dermal spread. And in this technique, which they term peripheral MOS, only the peripheral margin is cleared using the um, MOS technique. And then the central tumor-bearing island is excised to the level of the uh, mid-sub-Q and then submitted for permanence. More recently, Thomas, uh, you may have um, seen a publication by the Miller Group at UPenn, which uh, proposed a modified peripheral MOS technique, which can be uh, useful for some of the larger EMPD lesions where the number of tissue blocks from the peripheral margin will be so extensive that it will require a multi-day procedure and possibly reconstruction by another specialty. So the focus of the most surgeon with this technique is clearing the peripheral margin. The on-block excision of the central tumor down to the superficial fascia and reconstruction is then performed by a surgical colleague a week or even two weeks later under general anesthesia. And so for our listeners, I know this was um, a lot of very technical sort of explanation. I will um, recommend that you visit that paper, which is just hot off the press uh, in the Journal of Urology this past month, I believe. And I think it's an important concept. And 
in, in a way, we're practicing at an exciting time because I do think that our surgical colleagues in urology, uh, ENT, plastic surgery are recognizing the utility of Mohs surgery, especially for these larger ill-defined tumors. And so I think we're seeing a lot of larger academic medical centers and some independent practices start to do sort of a peripheral Mohs for tumors that ultimately will require much more complex reconstruction or resection in the operating room setting under general anesthesia. So again, as, as Noor has said, this is a paper in the Journal of Urology from uh, Chris Miller and the Penn Group. When we're doing what we would call routine Mohs surgery, is there any data for or against the use of uh, immunohistochemistry to identify the tumor? Is it necessary? Yeah, that's a great question, Thomas. And in our analysis of the published literature, we did actually show that um, most surgery as compared to other complete margin assessment techniques may actually um, result in lower recurrence rates. Um, and so our pooled analysis showed um, recurrence rates of 11% using the most technique, by contrast, 18% with other margin control techniques and up to 37% with wide local excision. And I say this because there is now emerging evidence from um, groups like the Zatelli group, the Miller group, um, and others that has shown that the use of immunohistochemistry with MOS may further actually reduce the recurrence rates to about 3%. And the immunohistochemical stain that is often, most often employed is CK7. And so I think that we definitely need to gather more data on, on this, but certainly from the handful of papers published so far, um, it does appear to be quite promising in reducing recurrence rates to a uh, very, very low 3%, roughly. And I'll direct the interested uh, listener there again to the senior author on that paper was Ali Hendy, and this was in Dermatologic Surgery in 2018, comparing outcomes with cytokeratin-7 intraoperative immunostaining, again, with, with even lower recurrence rates uh, to the point where I strongly favor using either some sort of permanent section with immunohistochemistry or Mohs surgery with immunohistochemistry. But I, in my practice, am not routinely doing these cases without the use of immunohistochemistry. Is there anything else in terms of topicals that we can, or let me not say topicals, in terms of non-surgical modalities? As you mentioned at the very introduction, when you noted the absence of screening guidelines, many of these patients are, are older. Some are 65, some are 75, some are 85. And especially with a broad plaque where there's significant morbidity to the surgery, or with good scouting biopsy evidence that's predominantly an intraepidermal process. Are there any other non-surgical modalities apart from imiquimod? And maybe even for imiquimod, you can tell us a little bit more about the different application regimens that you've come across and what you would do in your patients who choose not to undergo any sort of surgery. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, maybe I'll start by mentioning what are some of the considerations of when uh, use, using a miquimod for, for this disease? Um, and that is to say that there are no standardized treatment schedules. So the schedules varied from 
one to five times a week for anywhere between a month to up to a year. And the surgery was considered as a salvage modality in some of the cases um, that recurred um, post amiquimod. So certainly it doesn't rule out surgery um, as a, a consideration if amiquimod fails to reduce the burden of disease. But you're absolutely right, Thomas, in that they, these are patients that are often coming uh, to choose or choosing um, uh, non-surgical approaches because of the morbidity from surgery. And so other modalities that can be considered if imiquimod fails or for whatever reason is contraindicated is uh, photodynamic therapy. And similar to imiquimod, the, um, there are no standardized uh, treatment schedules and recurrence rates appear quite comparable at about 35 percent post-treatment. Uh, so I think it's definitely a approach um, that has its applications and its limitations. Now, beyond the, the treatment of the primary tumor, which I really appreciate your outline of sort of MOS versus modified peripheral margin MOS versus slow MOS versus conventional wide local excision and the non-surgical modalities, we've talked about a nodal exam. We've talked about uh, utilization of advanced imaging, but it seems that just about for every malignancy, there's at least case reports on the use of sentinel lymph node biopsy. Is that something that you foresee being more commonplace for EMPD now or in the future? And is it something that is being currently done a lot? Yeah. So in our review of the published literature, there were about 20 studies that were primarily in penoscrotal EMPD that reported on their experience with sentinel lymph node biopsy. And the positivity rates when pooled were about 20%. So it actually does seem to suggest a promising test for um, EMPD. Um, as we know, obviously, this technique can be very operator dependent and methods um, can vary from the use of blue dye, lymphocentigraphy with blue dye, or other techniques even. And then the other challenge is also interpreting this data, which is primarily retrospective and single institution cohorts. And so from, from that data, the other, um, I think, important thing for our listeners to appreciate is that even when a completion lymphadenectomy was performed in those cases that were sentinel lymph node biopsy positive, about 70% actually were negative for any additional residual disease. And so the utility of sentinel lymph node biopsy has yet to be defined. We do not have validated staging systems, for example, to offer the utility of SLNB as a prognostic um, marker. And certainly our data on completion lymphadenectomy does not seem compelling to perform that procedure in SLNB positive patients. Okay. And so I guess, as with many things, especially for these less common tumors, communication with the patient, multidisciplinary care, all really uh, are, are going to be really important for the patient. Assuming negative margins were achieved by one of the modalities we talked about, the initial workup was otherwise negative. How do you counsel patients and your colleagues on follow-up for patients with EMPD in terms of frequency, follow-up testing, and anything else that falls under that umbrella? 
Yeah. And so I think that this is something that requires, as you say, a close follow-up because of the high recurrence rates. So our expert panel recommended follow-up every three to six months for the first three years. And this includes evaluation, not just of the primary site, but also of palpation of the draining lymph nodes. Um, and then that follow-up can be spaced out to every six to 12 months thereafter. This is monitoring the primary site and draining lymph nodes with a clinical exam. Monitoring for internal malignant neoplasms or metastatic EMPD with imaging, our expert panel kind of agreed this would be based on the anatomical location and could be considered. So a follow-up uh, CT of the abdomen pelvis um, every six months, for example, if in the case of aggressive or invasive disease. Okay. Well, I have to say, Noor, you know, a big thanks to you and your group of collaborators for putting together these guidelines and really going through what I'm sure were countless papers on EMPD to crystallize out something that the rest of us can use to, to guide the treatment of, of the patients. Is there anything else that you think our listeners need to know about EMPD that we haven't touched on? I think just to say that the treatment of these patients is all in the proper planning, so pre-surgical planning in the case of Mohs surgery, anticipated Mohs surgery, and also multidisciplinary consultation. And so I think that these challenging rare tumors, having a, a multidisciplinary team on board can be incredibly helpful. Well, Noor, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I want to also thank our listeners for their intention. If you're listening to us through one of the major podcast platforms, please make sure to both review us and hit subscribe so that you'll be the first to be notified about upcoming episodes. Please share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees and let us know how we're doing or who you'd like on the show by contacting info at Thank you, and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mohs Surgery. 